host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me is my good buddy Jack, Jack Han. Jack, what's going on, man? Can you hear me okay, Dmitry? I can hear you great, man. You're some, you sound fantastic. Uh, welcome to the show. It's Super. good to have you on for the first time this year. Yeah, good, good to be on. And before we get started, uh, a word from our sponsors. Uh, this is brought to you by my girlfriend, Stephanie, because she's waiting for me to, to get her birthday dinner. So uh, so we're going to have an hour chat about hockey, and then I'm going to I'm going to have to run. Oh, thank you, Stephanie. Thank you. It's, uh, thanks for sponsoring today's show. Um, so it's Friday. We're going to do another installment of the mailbag here on the PDO cast where we answer as many listener questions that we received on Twitter as we can. If you're listening to this and you want to get involved next week or in future editions, we'd love that. So please don't hesitate to fire over whatever questions you have or things you'd like for us to talk about specifically. So Jack, with that out of the way, Let's get into today's batch of questions because uh, we got a lot of really fun stuff to get through. So here's the first one that I thought would be interesting for us. Um, our pal Meeks asks, it feels like every half decade the meta of the league shifts. Do you think the modernization of the game is driven more so from the players coming into the league and maximizing their skill sets? Or is it more that we're gaining a better understanding of hockey? Well, uh I think it's kind of like a catch 22 in a way, because the, like from what I see, um, you know, teams are defending differently because the players are getting better. And then the players in turn get better because teams are defending in a more aggressive and proactive way. So I think that the game in general is trending toward a really great direction. And, you know, one recent example is, uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, uh, Zegers is not able to, to start the season, but you know when he was hitting the Michigan, now all of a sudden the teams have to defend the back of the net. And because teams have to defend the back of the net, now it opens up some more options in the slot. And then um, basically, as, as Meeks pointed out, that the meta of the league shifts. And the other really obvious example is you'll see more and more teams play uh, either a 1-1-3 or have three players back because uh, they want to avoid getting caught uh, with an odd man rush if the other team is activating their, their defenseman on the breakout or in transition. So these are two, I think, really obvious areas where the NHL is playing differently than even, let's say, three years ago. Yes. I, well, my answer for this was both. And, and, and part it's part that, which you just highlighted there perfectly. Other part, though, is the players themselves are just getting so much better across the board. And it, go, it goes well beyond like the advancements we have in terms of like physical training, preparation through the offseason, nutrition, getting the body right, all that. I think this, the, the rise in skill development is really important here because young players these days who are coming into the league are coming in having watched and trying to emulate all the best parts of their favorite players arsenal, right? I, I think a great example of this is our pal Thomas Drance this offseason had a great piece on The Athletic um, where he interviewed Connor Bedard, who, by the way, has 73 goals in 89 career WHL games that he's played so far. And Bedard in that piece kind of talked about how he loves watching Austin Matthews shoot the puck, and he's really tried to kind of study and emulate and add to his own game that drag shot in particular that Matthews has kind of turned into his bread and butter. And so you're seeing more and more of that now, especially with the availability of all this video, right, where you can pull it up on YouTube, you've got all these clips available to you, you're seeing it all on Instagram, like all these young players are able to um, 
watch all this stuff and kind of then go and practice and do it themselves throughout the offseason and get better at it. And so I think kind of that appetite for improvement for young players, whether they're still at lower levels or actually young guys who have already had success in the NHL, is as high as it's ever been. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, as you mentioned, the current elite players and the future elite players, they study the game. Like, they watch a ton of hockey. They'll, uh, they'll review video. They'll try to steal from other, you know, superstars. But if you look at the bottom end of the roster, like, the, the example that I would give you is, um, you know, I, like, I've coached at different levels. And, you know, if you're lining up as a defenseman against the other team's, let's say, bottom six boards, or especially, let's say, their fourth line, there are some players that you know if you make any sort of effort to defend them throughout through the neutral zone, they're going to be happy to just chip the puck in and either, you know, create some token pressure or just go back and change. But in the NHL now, uh, even fourth liners, they're either somewhat skilled players who want to carry the puck in, or they're really good at just chipping it by you um, and then getting right on you on the forecheck. So you, you don't have a lot of these kind of free changes of possession anymore. And that's something that continues to evolve in the game as well. You know, I haven't worked with players um, as directly as you have, obviously, throughout your career. But, you know, part of having like a bigger online persona and kind of and having a growing following is I have had players reach out and kind of be like, oh, like, what, like, you know, who should I be watching? What should I be doing in terms of like adding stuff to my game? And, and someone I keep directing people to is actually, you mentioned Trevor Zegers there. I actually think his teammate, Troy Terry, is far more interesting to me because. He doesn't necessarily have that same flash or that kind of same new wave skill set as Zegers does, but his ability to be the craftiest guy in the league right now, in my opinion, in terms of all these little subtle tricks he does to, despite not being that that fast or that strong, get to wherever he wants to on the ice is so fascinating to me. And I find that skill set of his like so relatable or applicable, regardless of your talent level or your role on, on any team you're on right now for, for an NHL player. If you're watching what Troy Terry's doing and you're trying to kind of add that to your game, like I, I think you can legitimately improve your own effectiveness out there through like just watching YouTube clips, basically of what this guy's doing every night. Yeah, and and I think a lot of um, a lot of the improvement in our game is related to how easily available all this video is. Because I remember when I was growing up, and this is like you know early two thousands if you wanted to become a more skilled player, you would have these stick handling DVDs where, you know, it's either on ice or off ice, but basically you're doing a lot of things around pylons that aren't super applicable. And it was difficult to really break down what, you know, the NHL players were doing that actually worked because, you know, you didn't have cable or you you didn't have a, a, a DVR or, you know, you certainly didn't have YouTube. So the fact that, you know, this video becomes available, it's, you know, it's happened in, basketball with like n1 mixtapes back in the day or skateboarding or snowboarding like the fact that you're able to see the best and how they execute like that's a massive accelerant for for where the game's headed absolutely and i think it's all for the better like i I think it's these are all awesome developments for for just the, the product and entertainment value of it um was there anything else on on this kind of the concept of the modernization of the game or do you want to move on to the next question well, it's, yeah, so, so right now it's, you know, how do you defend the Michigan? So you send somebody back there, but, and then how do you avoid giving up, you know, four on twos off the rush, which is you, you bring an extra player back. Well, it's so, so that's what you're going to see this year. It's so tough, though, because you, you're, you're taught 
from a young level, not the chase players behind the net, right? Yeah, well, you know that that that's what happens when you when you get to the highest level. You got to sometimes unlearn some habits, and that's where I think some people get left behind because it, it's you know it's one thing to learn, but unlearning is actually way harder. Right now, uh, Mackenzie Weger is listening to this, and he's like, "See, I was supposed to chase Nikita Kucherov behind the net in that playoff game last year." Um, okay, so Cabernet Ferk here asks, "Handedness on the power play, how much does it matter?" Uh, let's let's take that first, and then we can talk about the second part of his question. So, handedness on the power play, how much do you care about it? Um, it depends who you are, and it depends what you're trying to accomplish. Well, so let's say it, ideally you're trying to score a power play goal. Yes, which is which is what you're uh, always trying to do, right? Yes. Yeah. Hopefully, so I, yeah. I, I'm going to kind of flip this because I, I have this whole rant about NHL PKs playing the diamond. Yeah, let's save that for later because we have another question about that. Okay, okay. So, so, so anyway, so handedness. Of course, uh, you want to have as many players available on their one, on their one timers as possible. So most teams are running a one three one. So if you're let's say you're the Tampa Bay Light, well, you're you're pretty well set up because if Kucherov has the puck on the right half wall, he's either passing to Stamkos cross seam or he's passing to Braden Point in the slot. Yep. So, so that matters a lot. If you if you have high end finishers, you like to get them on their one timer side as much as possible, uh, because I think it's it's a fact of life that everybody performs better uh, on their forehands. And if you're on your forehand, it's easier to shoot it into the net if it comes uh, on on your one timer side as opposed to you know across your body on the other side. Yep. So it matters a lot. And uh, the other thing that matters a lot is handedness on the faceoff. So, um, again, th- this is a bit of a segue, but uh, generally speaking, if you have right-handers taking face-offs on the right uh, and left-handers taking face-offs on the left, uh, you get a 5% boost in, in face-off winning percentage. So if you watch, let's say, Boston's power play, every single time they're going to have Bergeron uh, start power play one and they're going to have the face-off in the right dot. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you, if you, let's say, watch Toronto every single time, you're going to have either Tavares or Matthews taking a draw on the left side every single time. Okay. And, and based on, you know, you winning the faceoff, then you can very quickly get into your set. And this is, I think, one of the reasons why actually Florida's power play kind of went down the drain late last season, because for most of the year they had, um, uh, Barkov taking faceoffs on the left to start the power play, and then they got Claude Giroux at the trade deadline, and, and Claude Giroux is an excellent power play player and an elite faceoff guy, but he's a right-hander. Hmm. So basically, very late in the season, they switched their entire faceoff setup. And when you switch your faceoff setup, then also you're switching, you're, you're changing up all of your players' routes into your one-three-one afterwards. So. Um, you know, someone working in the industry on the team side sent me a note, and he said, uh, "I think it, I think it's according to Sport Logic, but basically, Florida went from a top five team after winning an Ozone Faceoff on the power play to bottom five team. Hmm. So that stuff really matters." Yeah, no, it is. Well, it's it's funny that you asked that question. Um, of like, it depends on what you're trying to accomplish, and then you brought up the example of the Bruins because what they're trying to accomplish off of offensive zone draws, especially on the power play is they're trying to score within the first five seconds, right? Like they're, they're so confident in 
how good Bergeron is at that, that they're like ideally designing set plays right off the draw, understanding that the quicker you can strike, the more likely it is to happen. Whereas a lot of teams, for whatever reason, their objective on a lot of these draws seems to be like, all right, well, let's just hope to win it back and then we can kind of methodically get set up here. And sure, you have two minutes to do so and you're not in a rush, but it makes a lot more sense to not kind of you're letting the opposing penalty kill kind of off the hook a little bit if you allow them to actually get in its structure as opposed to trying to kind of jump in there and quickly make something happen within the first five seconds off of any draw yeah and you know it's obviously you know but a a lot of people uh, out there know that i I used to work for toronto maple leafs and the bruins used to kill us on the power play because basically if there was any kind of a scramble puck uh, on the right side of the ice, uh, Pasternak, he would just go and find the left face-off dot. And if like a Marchand or a Taylor Hall or Bergeron or whoever, if they're able to dig this puck out of the corner, they could just throw a blind to the opposite dot and then Pasternak would one time into the net, essentially. So it was super easy. Like off a of, off of 50-50, off, of, off like kind of a scramble face-off, like Pasternak was just there and you couldn't cover him because otherwise you're compromising the middle of the ice yep yeah i guess my one final thought on this question to kind of more specifically give my answer on it is i think it 100 percent matters um the handedness on the power play because as you mentioned having players available on their strong side for the quick one-timer is so important to me just because we have we know this correlation between how long or I guess how short of a period of time the puck is on a on the shooter stick and then how like the, the the shorter a period of time that can be the more likely it is to actually score so having a formation where players are lined up so that they can execute multiple things at once whether it's one timing it for a shot or one timing a pass is supremely valuable on the power play and you, you mentioned Kucherov there one of my favorite chapters of yours in in I believe it was the Hockey Tactics 2021 edition was about what makes him so special as a weapon on that right flank on the power play. And it's his ability to not only pose a threat as a shooter on, off the one time, but regardless of where the puck is passed to him, he's able to, in one motion, either scoop and shoot, send it cross ice for the one timer to Stamkos, or kind of one touch it softly into the bumper for Braden Point to one time it and you can't really read what he's going to do with it because there's no predictability to it like he disguises it so well because he's able to from any of those positions basically do all the three of those things now that's what makes Nikita Kucherov so special you many teams don't have that type of player and you basically have to pick one thing and do it really well and just hope that that's good enough to to get the job done but I think being able to put players in a position where they're at least more likely to be able to kind of make you think about whether they're going to pass or shoot is so much more valuable than just having, you know, a design shooter standing in one spot and that's all he's going to do. And you know that whenever he gets the puck, that's that's the only thing he can do. Yeah, so handing is super important. Yes. Okay, so we got a, we got a bunch of questions here about the, uh, the New Jersey Devils. Devils fans are very interested in hearing us talk about their team. So, you know, it's it's a two-parter here. Let's kind of tackle them together. John Rambo asks, uh, is there a tactical explanation as to the gap between New Jersey's expected goals for and actual goals for? And uh, and we got another question that asks, is there anything specific with Lindy Ruff's schemes, systems, or tactics that make it harder for his goalies to make saves relative to league average? So 
obviously on both sides of the spectrum there offensively and defensively for the Devils, but since it is the one same team, I figured we could kind of tackle them together. So it's it's obviously quite early in the season. I, I was able to watch some New Jersey clips. Um, what I like to make is a larger point about what the game looks like very early in the season, and I'm talking like first month of the season, which we're still in. Yep. Um, in New Jersey's case, uh, the biggest explanation is they haven't had great goaltending, but you, you know now they're kind of turning it around. Uh, so, so you know we, we have this regression to the mean that you know we we understand so well. But there's also three things that typically happen um, with teams that are just kind of getting their feet wet to start the season, and that's why you see some kind of strange results sometimes earlier on. Uh, so, you know, New Jersey is a team that I think is, they try to play with the puck offensively, they activate their Ds, they do some interesting things. Um, you know, they're doing a lot of things that brought success to the Panthers last season. And overall, it's a game plan that I think is worth pursuing for them because they're on their way up and they have a lot of young, good players. And honestly, they, they should pursue more of a speed and skill on possession type game. But they've just kind of been turning the puck over at, at bad moments because it's early in the year. The players don't necessarily have a ton of familiarity with each other. And, you know, sometimes crap just happens, right? Yeah. Sometimes, you know, what could be a scoring chance turns into a bobble puck and then it goes the other way and all of a sudden it's in the back of your net. So I think that part is going to sort itself out um, as the players get more acquainted with each other and, and they get more comfortable um, the second part is there, there's one thing that they do that they do in their D zone that I'm not a huge fan of, which is they like to send both defensemen into the corner together. Hmm. And the reason why you would do that is basically like that's what the swarm is. So you swarm the puck so that you want to overwhelm uh, a 50-50 battle, come out with the puck, and then you know get quickly on your breakout or, or in transition. The problem with that is is that if the other team is able to get out of that pile, you're kind of in trouble because yep. if you bump that puck, let's say, from one corner to the other, now both of your Ds are stuck on the same side of the ice where the puck isn't. So they're kind of scrambling, and meanwhile, now you have forwards defending down low. The other thing is if they're able to slip this puck from the corner to the slot, the net front D now is not a D, it's a forward. Yep. And th there's been a couple of instances where the puck kind of squirts out of the corner and then the net front forward for the Devils is kind of caught in no man's land. It's not a situation that you're comfortable at all if you're a forward. And it's really difficult for forwards to either, you know, go stick on puck or get into the shooting lane or just make a sort of uh, any kind of an emergency read to defuse that chance. So what, what ends up happening is, you know, you kind of make your goalies look bad, but it's kind of the fault of, you know, not having a D out front. Yeah, yeah, those are the those are the kind of uh, breakdowns where uh, the other team's shooter all of a sudden pops up pretty much uncontested in the slot, and you're like, okay, that, you know, that something wrong must have gone wrong here, and that, and that explains that. I, I'd also say, you know, last year, according to Corey Schneider's tracking data, they were third behind the Avalanche and the Panthers in terms of uh, rush offense, right? And and, and you, you kind of alluded to how much they like to create on the move like that and i think it makes plenty of sense based on the young personnel they have and the talent they have and it's a fun way to play and also i think it's a net positive but when you do play that way a natural byproduct is going to be you're going to kind of expose yourself to odd man rushes against and those we know are 
you know, more likely to wind up in the back of your net. So I think both of those things, it's kind of a bad formula for them defensively where they're giving up odd man rushes against because of the way they play, but also when they're stuck in zone settings, they also are kind of exposing themselves a little bit there too. So it's kind of, it's, it's the worst of both worlds in a way. Yeah, and, and it's, it's a bit like investing on the stock market where you know, you're, you're taking a beating this week or this month, but if you think your overall strategy is sound, then you should try to write it out. Hmm. Yeah, I, I will say like offensively, they after their win, their 4-1 win against the Islanders on Thursday, the numbers are, are, are fine. I, they're still 30th in shooting percentage, but um, Jack Hughes has one goal and two assists, both secondary assists so far this season in his four games. And for my money, aside from, I guess, Connor McDavid, he's been the most dangerous player I've seen on a consistent basis. Like every time he's out there, he's creating a chance. He's got 12 high-danger chances of his own. He's probably created at least another 15 or so for teammates. And this was a problem for them last year where he was setting up Igor Sharangovich and, and other line mates constantly, and they just weren't burying the opportunities. But I think that's you know, like you'll, that's a good problem to have in terms of having Jack Hughes creating all of those time and time again. So I think the points are coming for him in a big way. And I think if the, if the Devils keep creating the types of chances they have so far this season, where I think they've been one of the best 5-on-5 five five, uh, offensive teams in terms of chance generation so far, the goals will come eventually. They're not going to keep shooting at the 30th uh, rate in terms of shooting percentage. And so once those goals start coming, like this is going to diffuse a lot of these problems for them. Yeah, and maybe the only thing I, I would say is, you know, going back to that D-zone swarm, if the other teams are already in your zone and you're not totally organized and you're not sure if you're going to come out with the puck, why would you expose yourself too much and, and send both these into that corner. Like, if you want, if you just take a moment, let things slow down, keep a D in front of your net, you're likely going to be fine. Yeah. As the puck is in the corner, there's, there's a lot of bodies around, the play stopped. You don't need to force anything in that situation because it's actually really hard to generate offense unless you overextend and you do something that's kind of ill-advised and all of a sudden you're giving your opponents an opportunity. Now, the implementation of something like that, like how hard is that to change during the season, assuming you're not having a bunch of practice time as well, right? Like it's like, I imagine it's not one of those things where you just want to be telling your players, all right, we're actually going to change this differently without having actually seen it on the ice first. I mean, I mean, this one's pretty easy because most teams leave their second defenseman net front by default. Right. So whether you look at Pittsburgh, whether you look at like Toronto, like, most teams in the league have a, have their second defenseman in front, and then the second man into the pile is either the center or at least you know a low forward. So you're not going to be able to maybe pressure as quickly, and maybe you're going to be in your zone for a few more seconds. But it's not a bad trade-off. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. All right, Jack, um, we are going to put a quick little pin in the conversation here. Uh, take a break here from the sponsors, and then we're going to pick. Uh, pick it back up when we return. You are listening to the Hockey PDO cast on the Sportsnet Radio Network. All right. Uh, we are doing mailbag questions here on the PDO cast with Jack Hahn. Jack, let's pick it back up. I have a question here from uh, Chaniel JD asks Which tactic, whether it's forecheck, breakout, coverage, etc., is extremely effective on paper, but very difficult for players to execute consistently in-game? Um, 
I, I, I mean, it's, it's a very case by case basis. Yep. Uh, the one thing that maybe I would uh, use as, as an example is the, is the 2124 check. So uh, the 2124 check is essentially the most aggressive variant of, of an offensive zone forecheck that you can have. And, you know, we, we talk about hockey being a game of aggression and a game of possession, which means that if you're able to pin your opponents up ice, um, you know, that allows you to control the game, whether it's by, you know, zone time, by, you know, Corsi, or eventually by actual goals. Um so the two one two four check essentially is uh, a lot of teams will use it off of a lost ozone faceoff where you have two wingers kind of attacking the D like a, like heat seeking missiles and then everybody kind of lining up man on man behind them and you you basically cannot get more aggressive than that in pro hockey without being completely suicidal. So this is something that I think lots of fans really like. Um, because again, it, it's it's the most aggressive variant of the, of the four check, and, and it looks really good on paper because you can really create a lot of havoc. Um, but I remember when I first started consulting for the Connecticut Whale of the PHF in women's pro hockey, uh, they ran a two-one-two, and they were getting absolutely slaughtered because it was way too easy for the other team to just kind of throw the puck off the wall or off the glass or just basically anywhere have it kind of trickle by two or three people. And all of a sudden they've given up, they've given up an all man rush. Right. So you, you gotta be very selective on where you use that. Yeah. I would say the, like the breakout would be the most important in my opinion, in terms of, I think we naturally think of it as, all right, to break, like breaking out of your zone is important for transitioning offensively. I think there's like a trickle down, effect in terms of on your defensive metrics as well it's really important and can really kind of be linked back to that we just saw in the stanley cup final really the the main difference between the colorado avalanche and the tampa bay lightning was the lightning simply didn't have the personnel or the ability to consistently get out of their zone cleanly against valerie and Etrushkin and terry lekinen and gabriel landiscog and all the great four checkers the avalanche were able to throw at them whereas the avalanche had Kale McCarr and Bowen Byram, who are capable of single-handedly taking the puck and basically beating that first four-checker and getting out of the zone and relieving pressure that way. So that kind of goes on a case-by-case basis. Uh, when I read this question, though, the thing, the first thing I did think of was, I think in-zone coverage defensively is the toughest to execute consistently in terms of maintaining it if you have to keep doing it without eventually slipping up and having those breakdowns, right? Like, And that's why we value possession and spending time in the offensive zone with a puck so much because if you have it chances are eventually you're going to get a great opportunity if you just keep that pressure up and then it also means you're staying as far out of your own defensive zone as possible which has that added bonus to it so i think in zone defensive coverage is something regardless of how good you are if you have to keep doing it you're eventually either going to take a penalty or give up a goal against yes absolutely so the the thing that grind my gears the most about whether it's whether it's casual fans or or high level coaches when people harp on defensive zone breakdowns i find it very unfair to players because you have to look at what's been happening for the for you know the previous minute sometimes because if you've been stuck in your zone uh for 45 seconds 50 seconds and you know your heart rate's at 200 you're, you're completely unable to think 
and, and that's when the really brain dead moments happen. But you know, anybody would be victim to that just because you're so overcome by the events, especially if you're playing against, you know, these top end players, you know, if you can't breathe, then you can't think. And if you can't think, then, you know, you tend to do some pretty dumb stuff. Well, this is a natural segue for us into a question about the Colorado Avalanche and their system. And now I will direct people to listen to you and I did a a show that was fully about what the Avalanche do. This was two postseasons ago. Uh, I have it down as May 29th, 2021. It's in the PDOcast archives. I'd recommend going to listen to that if you haven't yet. Um, where we just talked about kind of everything they do, how they assemble this team, what has made them special, and how they wound up, funny enough, losing in kind of unceremonious fashion to the Golden Knights like a week after we recorded that show. But a lot of it still stands and I think applies to the set, them finally getting to the top, to the mountaintop last year. So um, it's not out of date by any means. But beyond just having a bunch of great players, and we know they have an embarrassment of riches at pretty much every position in terms of the skater group, what do the Avalanche do specifically in terms of their system or their tactics or their approach that not only allows them to maximize that but makes them so dangerous? Um, th- this one's maybe less obvious, but what I would say is good things take time. So mm-hmm. they've been at it with more or less the same style of play for, I would say, five years now. So when they hit rock bottom the year before they drafted Makar, right, they, they couldn't do anything right on either side of the puck. But ever since then, they've been methodically working to implement this possession system and, you know, win or loss, and it was mostly wins, but they, they've stuck with it. So I think they bought themselves some leash with their, obviously, their Stanley Cup win. They've had some roster turnover. And if they keep going in this direction, they keep building on it, then they'll be just fine. So it's just whether we're talking about New Jersey, whether we're talking about the, the new coaching staff in, in Florida, whether we're talking about Toronto, who you know, can't seem to get it done in, in the playoffs, you know, good things take time. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that, those are wise words that apply to, uh, beyond just hockey. Um, there's two things I see that they do on a consistent basis better than any other team in the league. One is that positional interchangeability we talk about where you see Kale McCarr or Bowen Byram get deep in the offensive zone, even take the puck behind the net, which you rarely ever see defensemen do in the NHL, and they're comfortable doing so because they know Nathan McKinnon or Valerie Natrushkin, or whoever is out there is going to be reliable enough to cycle up and fill the spot that they've left in the point and not only do so, but actually be dangerous there as, a, as creating another avenue for them to get shots off. So they do that remarkably well, and I think that's a very underused um, tactic. Uh, it requires great players, I think, to pull it off and actually make it dangerous if you just have a, a fourth line and third pair out there it might not matter that much, but I think throwing different looks at other teams like that constantly leads to confusion. And even though everyone's watching tape and preparing for the avalanche and they know what they're going to do, you see it time and time again where all of a sudden Nathan McKinnon is kind of wide open uh, at the top of the circles there in the middle of the zone because other teams just aren't used to seeing that. And if they've had a 45, 50 second shift of chasing around a defensive zone, maybe it's not on top of their mind they're not thinking as clearly and then all of a sudden they kind of forget they have a slip up and nathan mckinnon gets a great shot off from there because that's kind of what happens over the course of a long shift 
Yeah, I mean, you know, as much as we talk about their system, it's not possible unless you have great players. And they have great players at every position. That is true. But here's one thing they do that I do think you could pull off with lesser players. How quickly they regroup in the neutral zone and don't let other teams off the hook, especially in the second period if other teams are trying to sneak in a change after one of those long shifts. How quickly they're able to get it back in the offensive zone and attack off the rush in that capacity is something that I do think is applicable to other teams that don't have Kale McCarr and Nathan again. Yeah, um, I think that's fair. And and if we have maybe some minor hockey coaches or minor hockey parents or, or players listening, as a defenseman, the one thing that you can do to really kind of embrace that solid play is if you get the puck on a regroup, just take two steps toward the offensive zone and see what happens. Don't just automatically go D to D or automatically throw the puck to forward. Like take a couple of steps and see what's out there. And then you might be surprised. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's well said. Um, okay. Next question here from intelligent dice. I'll give you this one. It says, give Jack a platform to talk about the one, one, two versus the diamond penalty kill. You kind of uh, hinted at this earlier. So I'll, I'll let you talk about this a little bit. Okay, so, so I, I want to bring your attention to, to an epidemic that I see at the NHL level right now. Um, I might be being a little bit dramatic, but you know, every year now I'm putting together uh, an ebook on every team's system. So last year was the first time I actually published it and, and it was actually really well received. This year um, I'm, I'm starting the research process and I'll have it out around January of next season. And I've looked at maybe a third of the league so far, and half of those teams are running a one-two-one diamond penalty kill. So what what that means is is that you have the top forward that's pressuring the point. You have uh, the two middle players who are responsible for um, the flanks, and then you have one player that's responsible for the net area. So this is in contrast to the one one two, which is basically a triangle down low and one player pressuring up top, or uh, the traditional kind of two-by-two two box PK that nobody uses anymore. And the reason why I think the diamond is a very bad idea, at least at the NHL level, is because uh, if I go on natural stat trick and I look up all of the NHL team's uh, power play outputs last year, uh, a typical NHL power play will control 80% of shot attempts. So they get four shots for every one shot that the PK or get, uh, the PKers get, mm-hmm. and they'll control 90% of goals. So they get, you know, nine goals for every one goal that the PK manages to, to score shorthanded on average. So when, as a PK, like these are very, very long odds. Like you're, you're basically playing a game that's extremely unfair for you. And when you're playing this game, that's, so unfair against you know power plays that know what they're doing what you want to do is you want to slow things down as much as possible um you know there are teams and you know toronto last year they scored some shorthanded ottawa scored some shorthanded two years ago but generally speaking trying to score or trying to create offense on the pk is a recipe for disaster because all else being equal the faster the tempo is the more you're going to get outscored. Because remember, you're getting outscored at a rate of 9-1. to So when you run a diamond PK, what that allows you to do is you can be very aggressive on flank players and you can be very aggressive on point players to force turnovers up top. And Mm -hmm. if you're able to force a turnover up top, 
then perhaps that gets you a, a two-on-one or even a shorthanded breakaway. And, and I think I, I would see it as the, the biggest rationale why more teams are going to the diamond is because it allows you to pressure uh, the high part of the zone better. Unfortunately, what that gives up is it leaves that middle bumper player in a one-three-one completely open. Right. So if you're pressuring the flank and then they're able to kind of slip a puck out to the, to the bumper player, now he's got a two-on-one to the net every single time or he's got a one-time. So, you know, generally speaking in hockey, you want to maybe give up the outside part of the ice to protect the middle. But if you watch a PK team running the diamond, they're essentially giving up the middle to cover the outside, which is almost never a good idea. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. I think certainly a common theme that you see for a lot of the most effective, especially consistently effective penalty kills is that sort of selective or situational pressure, right? Where they're able to um, force you into making mistakes and not necessarily allowing you to kind of, in the more traditional or conservative sense, just sit back and basically you know, slow play exactly, getting the puck where you want to and just hoping that, okay, we're going to hopefully block a shot here or kind of be in more of a turtle position like the the, the PKs. I guess it kind of runs counter to what you're saying, though, because you're, if you're saying if you're pursuing the puck in that capacity, especially aggressively, you're potentially exposing yourself to all of a sudden speeding up the sequence at which is played, which may leave you at a bigger disadvantage. Yeah, and again, normally, like, you know, when we talk about the importance of, of having pressure, right, we're talking about five on five. And five on five, it, it's, it's an even fight. But the thing is, is, is unless you're exceptionally good at pressuring the puck and then actually getting it back at four on five, sometimes it's better to actually let your opponents have the puck and let them run out the clock, you know, by themselves. Now, how would would the calculus change at all for that if you saw a team running a five forward power play set? Like, would you feel like you want to potentially pressure them even more because all of a sudden you have, you're guaranteed that the last line of defense there for that power play is going to be someone who's getting backwards and is very uncomfortable doing so? That's actually a potentially useful use case for for a more aggressive diamond pk another use case is if you're down by one in the third period and you need a goal um and the other teams on the power play maybe you want to you want to sneak a shorty in there uh but the thing is is that as far as i know nhl teams they don't really adjust their end zone power play setup according to either the other team's deployment or the score situation so if you're running a diamond you're running it all the time Right. Do you see the the, uh, the Avalanche running the three defensemen a second unit power play? Uh, I I mean the the last team that I remember running it was I think it was Nashville back yeah. when they had like Subban and Ellis and Yossi and um, I call them. yeah yeah and and it, it, it's it's not generally great because. Even if you have defensemen who are good shooters, so we're talking about Subban or, or Ekblad or, you know, you name it, they're not very comfortable sprinting down the wall to retrieve pucks in the corner. So if you have a defenseman playing the flank, and, and the most obvious example I'll use is when Shea Weber played on the first power play in Montreal. Yeah. So obviously Shea Weber's got one of the heaviest shots in the game maybe of all time, but 
on any sort of a loose puck in the corner, he's always slow getting there because he's got to kind of catch himself, you know, switching his mindset from I'm a defenseman to I'm a flank player and that's my puck. Yeah, which he's uncomfortable doing so. Um, yeah, but, but I mean, if Colorado have, you know, whether it's, uh, Sam Gerrard or Devontae's or J- Jacob McDonald or who, who have you, you know, maybe they can do it very well. Like, I, I don't see reason why they couldn't. It's just usually defensemen are less comfortable in those scenarios. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, all right, question here uh, from ST. What does it say about a team from a tactical or personnel standpoint if the second period is consistently their worst period? Um, it, it says that either they have issues, well, well, certainly they have issues with a long change because yeah. that's the most obvious thing. So right. either they have uh, personnel who are slow because, you know, if you're on the long change, potentially one pass can be three or four players if, if they're caught. The other thing is maybe they have an issue with their puck management, whether it's on the breakout or, or in the offensive zone, which means that they get caught on the ice for a long time. They can't get off. And then the other team really feasts on that. I can tell you're uh, you're such a coach because my first thought was okay, it, it reflects poorly on the coaching. But you're instantly going <laughs> you're instantly going going against the personnel there. But to me, it, it just signals a lack of preparation or a lack of understanding of the situation. But um, well, well, I mean, the thing is, is ultimately the players play the game. Right. So perhaps it is an issue of poor coaching that the wrong players are being put out there or, you know, the wrong tactics are being used to address these end zone scenarios. So it, it, it certainly could be coaching. Yeah. I mean, obviously over a short period of time, it could just be a complete aberration or randomness or just getting caught a couple of times. If it's a consistent thing as the, as the listener is asking here, that would signal to me, okay, well, if you're not like, if, if you're realizing this is happening time and time again, and you're not making adjustments or you're allowing it to keep happening, then that would signal a coaching issue to me. Um, but yeah, over a short period of time or whatever, it could just be complete random, complete random stats or, you know, just a, a random goal here or there against that doesn't necessarily signal that anyone's at fault. It just happened. Yeah, th- that too. But, but it, it, I think it is a, a very real thing. Like I remember, uh, three years ago now, uh, when, uh, Sheldon Keith first took over as the coach of the Toronto Maple Leafs later that season, they played Pittsburgh and I heard through the grapevine that Sidney Crosby after that game said the Leafs in the second period was the most aggressive team that they've ever played and the most effective in terms of creating pressure on you. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if it's good enough for Sid, it's good enough for me. There we go. Yeah, that's a, that's a good way to think about it. Um, Swimming Totoro here asks, is scoring up across the league? The answer to that is yes, um, because it sure feels like it is. Is there anything systematically that teams are doing to get ahead offensively? I think we've kind of hinted at the fact that there's just much more skill throughout the league. Um, in terms of strategy, though, I think teams are kind of naturally leaning towards being more aggressive. And, you know, whether it's through earlier goalie pulls, everyone now using four forwards and one defenseman on the on the power play in terms of their setup, Um or just not, you know, not icing goons on the fourth line and actually having players who can create and, and contribute offensively. I think all of that kind of ties into it. But in terms of like actual, um, you know, actual systems or actual tactics, I don't know. Do you have an answer here for that? So I, 
I, I certainly appreciate that. I think overall the game is getting more skill oriented, and and I think overall you know scoring is, is going to maybe trend up a little bit, you know, in the long term. But we we got to pump the brakes because it's so early in the season that again lots of teams are making these defensive mistakes that you won't see later on. Yeah. Uh, same as like every year we say, oh well, officiating is fixed, you know, because power play opportunities are up, and then once we hit January, like it all kind of goes back to the historical norms. So. I think most of it is just due to the teams not really hitting their stride structurally just yet. Um, but certainly the players are getting better, right? So, you know, o- overall, like, I don't think we're going to go back to the kind of slog, slot fest that we used to have. It's just the raw numbers of the goals, they are going to come down because teams are going to, they're going to find more defensive solutions and, and scoring is going to kind of, regress back and more in line with the historical norms i think yep all right one final one and this one's from uh from me i put in a good word with the host to uh to get my question answered is there a team that you've seen so far this season that has made you want to watch them more not in terms of like just being incredibly entertaining or whatever but like you're just you've seen kind of sprinkles of them doing something and and you're thinking to yourself all right i want to spend more time watching them or breaking down this tape because it is of interest to me for whatever reason. It could be good or bad. Okay. Um, I, I don't quite know what to make of the Florida Panthers just yet. Yeah. It, it, it's a team that I've identified as a candidate for kind of a, a really, kind of a really bad follow-up to last season when they were so, so good. You know, I've watched a couple of games and, they still, they're still able to create a lot of offense, but I just think that when it comes to creating pressure and making plays, their forwards are carrying a really, really heavy load, and I wonder if they're able, they're going to be able to, to keep it up now, especially with you know, Eggblad being out potentially long-term. Their second and third pair Ds are Mark Stahl and, and Josh Mahura, who mm-hmm. uh, you know, these are NHL players, but I, I, I don't really trust them at that level. Um, so we'll see, like maybe if they keep it up, then, then they'll be comfortably a playoff team. But if at some point the forwards, uh, they start slowing down and they start getting tired of being the ones making all the plays, then, then this is a team that maybe is, is in for a rough time. Yeah. We had a question about them in Palmeries and kind of how much, how much has changed since last year. And the reason why I didn't pick that question to answer today is because I just want to watch them more. So maybe next time you and I chat here on the PDO cast, we can, um, we'll have a bigger sample of, of Panthers games. We can kind of break that down at a deeper level beyond just kind of doing a lot of guesswork because we haven't seen that much of it. My answer to this question is the, is the Buffalo Sabres who, um, you know, just swept the, the two Alberta teams. Now, you know, there are 47% expected goal teams so far this year, which I think is actually quite good considering they've played the Senators, Panthers, and then those two Alberta teams. Um, and, you know, even if they're not necessarily that good this year or, or it, you know, we'll see how the rest of their season goes, I think they're, they've been really fun to watch. And so for me, I kind of want to see how those players develop. I think they have a ton of interesting parts there. And I had a, a listener kind of bring up the, pa- the 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 fact that they've noticed that they're sort of intentionally seemingly playing more high-end hockey by kind of cherry-picking and being okay giving up more defensively because of either their tactics or the personnel they have. And 
the the data certainly seems to bear that out in terms of how much higher event hockey they've been playing so far this year than last. So I kind of want to see a bit more of that and see if that continues and see how they hold up if that is the case. Um, so I'll be watching the Sabres quite a bit. So I I hear you. Um, in that category of rebuilding teams that, that could be surprises, um, I prefer Detroit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, why, why can't we have both? We'll see. Maybe if Florida falls a little bit and then Buffalo and Detroit fight their way up, we could we, we could have something. Okay. Well, well, we'll we'll revisit this next time I have you on, Jack. This was a blast. Um, thank you for taking the time. Thank you to the listeners for sending the great questions. And as always, looking forward to next Friday's mailbag already. Um, if you enjoyed it, uh, you can help myself and the show out by giving the PDO cast five stars wherever you listen to podcasts. Jack, how um how can the listeners uh help support your work and where can they check you out? Okay, so at this point, you know who I am. Uh, follow me on Twitter. Buy my eBooks. The next one comes out in January. Uh, five on five special team systems for all 32 NHL teams. I'm consulting again for the Connecticut Whale of the PHF this season. Watch our games. Uh, if you want fascinating tactics, uh, that's the team to watch. Okay. Well, I love it, Jack. Have a great weekend. Uh, we'll be back on Monday with more of the Hockey PDO Cast on the Sportsnet Radio Network.